I want to acknowledge some folks that are here this morning. Uh, yesterday, we gathered here in this very sanctuary to celebrate a life well lived. Um, Gail Dahlstrom, we had her memorial service of celebration here. And uh, there's some family and friends actually from out of town that came. And, and uh, some of you came up to me and said, what time is your worship service tomorrow? And he said, I'm going to be there. And sure enough, you came today. And so I just want to acknowledge you, okay? Yeah, I just want to acknowledge you. Um, <laughs> can, can you, you know, we're not usually a clapping church, but y'all just went ahead in any way. Can you stand if you were a family and friends of Gail? And, and, and yeah, yeah. We just welcome them. Welcome them. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I also want to just briefly acknowledge as well, um, today is Child Dedication Sunday, and so there's some folks uh, that are here that are family members of folks who are dedicating their children, and so I, I would ask you to just kind of stand from where you are, if your friends and family that are here, for folks that are being dedicated, we'll do that, we just want to acknowledge you. Yes, yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah, there's some folks up in the balcony as well, yeah, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, I, I just want to let you know that uh, your pastor is kind of in a strange place today because yesterday was an incredibly emotional Sunday again as we celebrated a life well lived. Um, and then 24 hours later, almost 24 hours later, uh, here we are gathered as a church to dedicate and celebrate lives to be lived. And so it's this... It's this uh, place, you guys, of uh, mourning and grief and yet hope, hope and joy at the same time. And I realized this morning as I thought about it, isn't that the Christian life? The Christian life is the already of the kingdom that's here and then not yet. Most of the Christian life, you guys, is spent between Good Friday and waiting for Resurrection Sunday. And I don't know if this makes sense to anybody, but I, in a weird way, in a weird way, I'm experiencing resurrection hope anew. What do I mean? Even as we celebrated Gail's life yesterday, and as we're about to dedicate, dedicate these children unto the Lord, I'm being reminded that our God is a God of resurrection, God of new life. A God who oversees all the seasons of life. There are winters in our lives. It's inevitable. None of us lives in eternal springs. None of us. But we know that even as we live in the dark, cold winters, that life might be bare on the outside, but they're not barren. There's life pulsating underneath. And we have our hope in a God who brings life out of death. By the way, and this isn't some future thing, you guys. I tell you all the time, as we experience many deaths and small losses in our everyday lives on this side of heaven, our hope lies in the fact that when something ends, God has something in store to birth anew. Amen? I, I mean, I'm just going to ask, how many, of us, how many of you are sitting here and a relationship ended, a career, maybe a ministry, or something that you thought, man, when it ended, you're like, ah, only to realize that God had something for you and you would have never found that unless, anybody, anybody? I mean, that's our testimony. 
That's our testimony. So if there's anybody here, I'm just telling, if there's anybody here living on a Saturday, this confusion in between of one door has closed, maybe a relationship, ministry, career, or loss, of catastrophic loss, and you're going, God, can you birth life out of this? I just want you to know that we have a God who brings resurrection out of life, out of death. That's our hope. That is our hope. The other thing that I was blown away by is the fact that you church family showed up, man. Do you know, as much as I am, I am grateful to have met Gail's family and friends and they're amazing people, you know, here's what I saw. What I saw was when Gail was initially diagnosed with cancer, it was her church family that walked with her and prayed with her. When Gail was in hospice at the last remaining days of her life, it was her church family. I don't wanna highlight some folks, but it was, it was people like Jamie who spent time and sang hymns for two hours. It's church family that walked with them, provided meals. It's church family that sat with Carl and just mourned and grieved with him. It's church family that showed up yesterday to set up tables to provide food, to be here to greet her friends and family. Church family, I am so proud of you. I can't even tell you. My heart is bursting with pride for you. And my hope and my prayer is that this morning as we focus just a little bit of our time thinking about church as family, that those of you who still feel like you're on the outside looking in, my heart is so burdened and breaks through because if you still feel like, I don't feel like I'm part of this church, my prayer for you is that God will do something today that will move your heart and our hearts that you would be a part of not just on Sundays, but a vital part of this church family. Amen? So, so uh, we've got the dedication thing coming at the end, and I want to just ground us, because we do this three times a year, child dedication, and three times a year, we specifically focus on this aspect of this. And let me, let me open it this way. The church is not like a family. The church is family. Right. Somebody clapped. Let, let me say that once. The church is not like, there are these metaphors in the Bible, you know, and we talk about them. Church is like a building. Church is like a body. The church is not like a family. Bible says the church literally is family. So I need you to get that. Because when we come to faith in Christ, what the Bible says is we literally get God as our heavenly father. Is that good news? We literally get Jesus as our older brother, and we get each other as brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. The church is not like a family. The church is family. And I know that's huge. That's, this is, to wrap our mind around this. Now, the interesting thing is, in the New Testament, do you realize that the early church, this is how they identified themselves primarily. We've been talking about discipleship, right? And how often the word disciple appears in the Bible. Do, do you know, though, that after the Gospels, after the book of John and some of the book of Acts, the word disciple just disappears. Instead, the word that appears again and again is brother, brother. Sister, brother, sister, brother, brother, family, household. That is the way that the early church identified themselves. And has enormous implications for us, doesn't the church? Family.
family. So let me give you an example. And, and, and there's so many verses. Let me just pick one. And this is Paul who wrote majority of the New Testament letters, epistles to local churches. First Timothy 3.14, he says, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's, say that with me, say that with me, household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, foundation of truth. Paul says church, household, church, family, church, household, church, not like a household, church is household. By the way, I love that term household. Do you know why? Because household implies an extended family, not just mom and dad, but extended family of aunts and uncles and grandparents. How many of us grew up in cultures where this was the norm? Yeah. I grew up, my grandparents lived with me while I was growing up in Korea, okay? They were a part of our house. And my aunts and uncles only lived like five, 10 minutes away, okay? So it was an extended family, the household. Uh, but Americans, we wrestle this culture. Uh, David Brooks wrote an article for The Atlantic. And the title of this was The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. By the way, please look this, not now, don't, don't pull out your phones and Google. Like when you go home, read this article, okay? Because it's so powerful. Listen, he's not saying that the nuclear family is a mistake as in it's useless. What he's saying is this. He's saying this culture, this culture that puts so much emphasis on mom, dad, kids, and a dog. Don't forget the dog, okay? That that family unit no longer works. Part of what he says here is he's, we've made life, this is nuclear family, our culture, we've made life freer for individuals, but more unstable for families. We made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life to smaller, detached nuclear families, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familiar system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and poor. See, if you're rich or you're well-to-do, you've got all kinds of resources, don't you? So you don't have to rely on other people. Well, that's not the case for vast majority of Americans. The argument that Brooks makes is that that not only is, is, is a nuclear family, it's a modern invention. Mom, dad, two kids and a dog, that wasn't how most cultures for most of humanity lived. That's a modern invention, and he's saying it no longer works. What's needed is what he calls corporate families that have become more important as a support system. Why was the show Friends so popular? Why were so many people drawn to that show? Every Thursday night, must-see TV. Because we are living in a culture in which, listen, listen, if the primary support is mom and dad, two kids and a dog, what happens when mom and dad get divorced? What happens when the primary support system gets blown up through social mobility, through divorce, through financial hardship? What happens to that? This isn't some theoretical. This is part of some of our stories. When our family, nuclear family, blew up, it, it impacted us because there was no extended support system there to help. 
So in a culture of divorce, social mobility, economic hardship, what happens when the support system is entirely made of mom and dad, two kids? Extended families, larger corporate families was always God's intention when he thought of the church. There's a saying in our church that we say all the time that is this. You're not a product of your individual choices. You think who you are is because I, no, you're not. You're a product of your family. You're a product of your community. And here's the thing. Community is what hurts you. Community is what will heal you. You can't get better on your own. Hurt people, hurt people. But heal people, heal people. There are wounded healers among us who found healing, not just alone with God, but through community, and they are the ones that will come around you to bring healing in your life. Community is what hurts you. Community is what will heal you. But this is so foreign in our culture, isn't it? It's so hard to even wrap our minds around. Well, today, we spend some time thinking about what it means that we're family, what implications there are that we're family. Not like a family, we're family. What the parents are doing today is committing to raise their children to be a follower of Jesus. Yes. The act of dedicating a child, in case you want to know, doesn't have salvific value. Faith, salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Amen? But what the parents are doing is they're saying, we're going we're gonna to commit, and I met with them, by the way, for an hour to talk through this. We're committing to, to raising our children in the ways of the Lord. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Parents, parents, give me your ears. Parents, parents, none of us will be perfect parents, but all of us can be praying parents. Prayer is the biggest, most important privilege you have as a parent. Your prayers are leaving a legacy for your children. Parents, do you pray for and with your kids? Parents, do you pray for and with your kids? You're leaving a legacy for your children. And what we're doing, though, and the more I think about and the more I do child I'm realizing, see, see, it's more about us. It's more about the responsibility on this family to come along and partner with the families, man. So the, the reason why I'm talking about this is because at the end, when we dedicate these kids and it's commitment time for you and me, please don't flippantly go, yeah, I do, yeah, I do. No, no, no. Take it seriously that we are the family, household of God. Can I just spend a moment reminding all of us how it is that we came into this family? Can I do that, church? Because this is the foundation of everything that we do. We talk about the household of God. Well, how did you and I get in here? Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've read that so many times. I said, oh, yeah, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it, I was stopped dead in my tracks this week because this truth that God chose us. Does that blow away anybody? Come on, Somebody. You know what that means? That means you didn't pick God. God picked you. God picked you. He beat you to it by like eternity. <laughs> Can I get an amen? He 
picked you. He chose you. And there are lots of implications of that. One of that is this. God actually likes you. Hello, anybody? God actually likes you. We have this kind of thing of like, I know that God loves me, but does, he chose you. He likes you. God delights over you. He rejoices over you with singing. Zephaniah 3. He picked you. How did he pick you? Check this out. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Again, he preselected you. God wasn't waiting on you. God selected you before your mom and dad even met. Chew on that for a second. This is the gospel. I pray to God that this never gets old. Amen. Man, we are desperate. Do you know why I need to remind you of this? Because you and I live our every day desperately trying to get somebody to pick me, choose me, like me. And we have the creator of the universe who said, before the world even was thought of, I chose you. And I like you. And I want to work with you. Is that good news? Man, chosen people are walking around going, look, the only reason that I'm a Christian is because even when I didn't know that I needed it, God sent his son to die and rise for me. Even when I was running away from God, even when I wanted to do nothing with God, God chose and pursued after me. And I am a Christian by grace and grace alone. I pray that that never gets old for you. That never gets old for me. And what that does is it fundamentally reshapes our identity, doesn't it? You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. I am a child of God. That is my fundamental identity. And unless you and I know that, community is a pipe dream. Forget about community. Do you know why? Because if your fundamental identity is not, I am a son of God, daughter of a child of God, and your identity becomes, I am a good person, I am a moral person, how do you treat people that you don't deem as moral or good? If your fundamental identity is your race and your ethnicity, how do you treat people of other race and other ethnicity? If your funda... I'm going to go there. If your fundamental identity is your politics... You're a donkey or you're an elephant. How do you treat people who have differing political views? It's the election year. I'm already tired of it. Can I get an amen? I'm already exhausted. I'm already exhausted. Election year, the fever is on. And here's the thing. We all go in, if that party would just get it right, if that party would just get it right, the problem isn't what's out there. The problem is what's in here. It is so discouraging for me to see Christians get all riled up and thinking, if we could just elect the right person, can I remind you that we follow someone whose height of leadership and career was not when he was elected to the highest office, but when he was crucified. Do not put your hope in political powers to bring about lasting change. My hope is not in a Christian nation. It's Christ-saturated universe. I will not trust in princes or kings. I will trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Get it right, church. Be politically involved, but don't you dare forget who sits on the throne. Everything starts here. Everything starts with us recognizing my identity is I am chosen. I am the beloved of God. I am a son. I am a daughter. I've been adopted into this household. Henry Nouwen says, when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their chosenness. See, instead of making us feel that we're better, more precious, or more valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. That is the great joy of being chosen, the discovery that others are chosen as well. In the house of God, there are many mansions. There is a place for everyone, a unique, special place. Once we deeply trust that we are precious in God's eyes, we are able to recognize the preciousness of others, their unique places in God's heart. Community is a pipe dream unless you realize, start here, I am chosen. I am the beloved of God. Are you there yet? Am I there yet? So what implications then does this have? How does a family or household of God that's chosen, that's beloved and anchored in that? I want to remind you that the New Testament, majority of it, are letters or epistles written to churches, actual local churches. And so much of the New Testament, as Paul says, I'm writing this so that you can teach people how to conduct themselves in God's household. Much of what we find in the New Testament is written to people like you and me, a local church, saying, this is how you all ought to live. All the one another statements we've talked about, over hundred of them, they're essentially ways in which the household of God live together and work together. All I'm going to do today is just point out a handful of, so how does the household of God live together? And what implications does it have? Here's the first one. And I needed to start here because of our current culture, societal, where we are. The family or the household of God demonstrates the reconciling power of the gospel. The family demonstrates the reconciling power of the gospel. Ephesians 2, another letter that Paul wrote, right? He says this, for through him we both have access to the Father. There it is again, son, daughter of God, beloved, that's you, by one spirit. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of, there it is again, God's household. Ephesians 2, if you know, first part, he talks about this amazing, amazing truth that God reconciles us to him through Christ's work on the cross. And Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith, not of your works so that no one can, what? Boast. Listen, you can't be a Christian who has encountered the gospel and be self-righteous at the same time. Can I get an amen? Those two things can't grow in the same dish. But here's the challenge for new community. Challenge for new community is that you would be self-righteous. Challenge for new community is that you would be self-righteous towards other self-righteous people. Did you hear what I said? The challenge for us embracing the gospel is not that we would look down at other people, but that we would look down at people who look down at others. Don't be bigoted towards other bigots. Don't be self-righteous. Why? Paul says we've been saved by grace, and that utterly humbles us. So how do we treat people who disagree with us? How do we treat people who don't believe what we believe? We love the Hindu. We love the Muslim. We die and lay down our lives for them. 
Saved by grace. Chosen son, daughter. Then Paul says, not only has God reconciled us to him, he's also reconciled us to what? One another. That's his whole argument in the verses I read. And the one another, can I remind you, the one another in, in, in context were two hated races of people, the Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says what the gospel does is in this household, God has reconciled two hated groups of people who would have nothing to do with each other. Did you know that non-Christians in the first two, three hundred years call Christians, they label them third genus or the third race of people. Do you know why? Because what Christians were defied any social categories that people had at the time. In this family, check this out, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. In this family, there's neither male nor female, nor slave nor free. It doesn't mean that our ethnic racial distinctions are erased. What it means is those things no longer identify us because our identity is what? Sons and daughters of God. Is this good news? Here's the thing, it's not a miracle to love people that are like you. It's not a miracle to love people that are just like you. You know what is a miracle? Do you know what was a miracle? What was a miracle is that the first church had people who were one time enemies, strangers, become friends and more than friends, family. And the way that they did their life, read church history, the way they did their life was so powerful, so defied all categories, that it wasn't just the result of conversion, it became the reason why people believed the gospel. Church in America has lost her prophetic voice. Do you know why? The church loses her prophetic voice when we are indistinguishable from the culture. Can I get an amen? Before we rail on gay marriage, can we get our own house in order? We have lost our prophetic voice when it comes to relationships. How can we prophetically declare the message that God reconciles when the church itself has not experienced reconciliation with each other? How do we declare the gospel that God reconciles when 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in this country? We have lost our prophetic voice to challenge the culture. Do you have brothers and sisters in this room? We recite every single Sunday, reconciled to be reconcilers, reconciled to be reconciled. Do you know what that means? That means if you're living it, there ought to be some people in this community, in this family, that you're looking at going, we would never be family if not for Jesus. Do you have people in this room you can go, if not for family, we wouldn't, why are you laughing, Dan Radakovich? Is that us? Is that you and me? Amen. That's a 67, 8-year-old Serb talking to an almost 50-year-old Korean-American. And he is saying, you guys, please, there is no way this is possible if not for Jesus. Do you have people in this room that you're looking at going, if if not for Jesus, the family I grew up in would have kept us apart. If not for Jesus, heck, the church I grew up in would have kept us apart. If not for Jesus, the zoning laws would have kept us apart. If not for Jesus, the racist realtor system would have kept us apart. 
If not for Jesus, my own ignorance and prejudice would have kept us apart. Do you have brothers and sisters in this room that you could look at and go, if not for Jesus, this is impossible? Are we family? Are we the household of God? Second, this family enables us to let down our fig leaf armor. Hmm. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How many of you would agree that we live in a culture of fear? I need you to go home and think about this. Do you know that in a culture of fear, what people long for is not safety, it's acceptance. Let me say that again. In a culture of fear, what people are hungry for is not safety, it's acceptance. Acceptance touches a deep part of my soul that was placed there by God. Acceptance touches a part of my soul that was put there by God. What do I mean? I don't know you personally, many of you, but I know this about you. You long for intimacy. We live in a culture that equates sex with intimacy. Can we just all agree that sex doesn't equate to intimacy? Two people can sleep together that don't even care about each other. And by the way, for a culture that's obsessed with sex, has any society been lonelier? Don't confuse sex with intimacy. Do you know what you're longing for when you have sex? It's to be known. It's to be fully loved. See, this is the reason why, and I say this all the time, I have a bunch of people that come up to me and go, I really like you. And inside I'm going, you don't even know me. But when my wife, who knows everything there is to know about me, says, you're all right. <laughs> By the way, she says it's exactly like that. My wife, you're all right. And that's her way of saying, I love and respect the man of God that you are. I almost begin to weep. Do you know why? Because I was created like you to be fully known and to fully loved at the same time. Listen, we lost all that in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when man says, come out from the rule and reign of God, the first thing that happens, read your Bible, it's not murder, it's not injustice of some kind. What is it? We what? We armored up. We grab fig leaves and we armored up. And the first thing that happens is we say, I can't let you really see who I am. I can't let you really know who I am, so I'm going to pretend because if I was really who I am, I'm afraid you might reject me. You might not want to be around me. So I'm going to hide. I'm going to armor up. Do you know how many times a month I will sit at a coffee shop with somebody and this scenario will play out? They will share the most gut-wrenching thing with me. And I will ask them at the end of the day, have you told anybody about this? And do you know how many times people say, no, 
Have you told anybody about this? No. And what I know about him or her, though, is that they can't shake that longing. They can't shake that longing for, I wish somebody knew this about me, but would accept me and love me. But in order for that to happen, you have to take the risk and put yourself out there to say, will you see all that I am? Can I show up in my full self and to be accepted? And that's risky, isn't it, church? But can we all agree that if there is one place where people don't have to be pretend to be better than they are, it's here. The church isn't some country club for people that are well-to-do and everything put together. This is a hospital for the broken and the hurting. This is the one place on the face of the planet where people would have to come and not have to pretend to be better than they actually are and know and trust that they would be accepted. Can I get an amen? But that's impossible unless you and I realize this truth. When Paul says, accept one another, what? Just as what? Christ accepted you. See, the reason why I can come to you and you can come to me is that the way Jesus accepted me wasn't, Peter, if you would just get your act together, if you would just clean up a little bit, if you would just be better about praying and reading your Bible, I will welcome you into my family. I don't have to pretend to be better than I am to be in God's family. I'm accepted by grace. And by the way, God's acceptance of us doesn't in any way diminish his longing for our wholeness and our healing. Grace and acceptance says, I love you as you are, I accept you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. That's what God does. And it's what we're called to do for each other. Can this be a household and family? Where I can, because here's the thing, when somebody knows all the, all the, just the, 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 the messy and broken and just crazy parts of me, and yet accept me as Christ accepted me, I'm telling you, it heals a part of my soul that was put there by God. So my question is, who are your brothers and sisters? Who are the people that know that one thing that you have not told anyone. How many of you are sitting here going, I have not told anyone, Peter, that's my story. How many of you are here this morning carrying something that you're saying, I haven't told anyone about this. Let me be gentle and yet firm. Church, please listen. Please don't say, Peter, I get it, but I'm gonna do it tomorrow because tomorrow is never guaranteed. Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews says, today when you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did. See, for Israel, later never came. God, I'm just praying, you know I've prayed all week, that for that one brother and one sister here who's carried that secret in isolation and they're dying inside, that they would have the courage today, not tomorrow, Today to say, today is the day I tell somebody. Today is the day. And by the way, church, as you're listening to the rest of the sermon, will you keep praying for that? Because my heart has been burdened by somebody sitting here, some people sitting here saying, I haven't told anyone about this, that they would be fully known so they can be fully loved. 
Third family instills courage in us. Let me, I gotta, I gotta go fast because I don't need to finish in about 10 minutes or so. Family instills courage in the first Thessalonians 5:11. Encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I have three kids. 15? 12? I'm looking at my wife and nine. Do you know what I notice about all of them? Do you know what I notice about all of them? They all, in one way or another, have this thing where they're saying, Daddy, do you believe I can do this? Do you know that that never goes away? Do you know that every single one of us has a deep longing to be believed in? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? We all in this room have this deep longing that somebody would look at our mess, our junk, and not see us just for who we are today, but who we can become. We all desperately want people to know not just who we are today, but people to know who we could become. And here's the thing. Did you know that the word encouragement literally is in or in? Encouragement, courage. Encouraging somebody is to be able to instill courage in them. Encouraging somebody is not saying, oh, you think you're great. Encouraging somebody, this is so powerful, is to be able to instill courage. It's the ability to communicate, I believe in you. And here's the thing, unless you sit there and go, man, this is some pop psychology business. No, when you and I communicate, see, see, when I say to you, I believe in you, I am believing the truth that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I am believing when Paul says, work out your salvation for it is God who is at work in you to will and to act for his good purpose. When we encourage people, we're saying, God believes in you. God knows you can be better. God says you can overcome this. That is what we're saying. Encouraging somebody and saying, you look good in that outfit. Encouraging somebody is saying, God isn't done with you yet, and he will finish his work. This is what the Bible says all over when it says for Ephesians 4, speak truth in love to one another, growing. Do you know what speaking truth is? It's not just telling them areas they need to work on. Speaking truth is speaking the truth of God. God believes in you. God says you can be better. God loves you. God will perfect the work he began in you, Joe. We need that like we need oxygen. Every time you guys get together in life groups, I don't know what y'all do, but you best not end that life group without spending some time encouraging, speaking truth to one another. I have more faith in you than you have in yourself. Can we be a church that does this good, Lord? If we did, this, this place would be turned upside down. This place would turn upside down. And family helps carry one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill
as I was preparing this sermon, and I came to this, and what I wanted to say to you, when Paul says, carry each other's burdens in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, Paul says, can be summed up as what? Love God and love your neighbor, Jesus said. It's everything. Carrying each other's burdens is one of the most profound ways in which you and I love each other. It's John 13. And this hit me like a ton of bricks because this is what our church has lived for the last few months. See, David Brooks says that, um, and I found this helpful, extended families, he says, have two great strengths. The first is resilience. What do I mean? If a mother dies, there are siblings, uncles, and aunts, and grandparents that are there to step in. See, I remember seeing our church step in when Brian Bridgman, one of our dear brothers, lost his wife, Amy, to cancer in her 30s. And the church stepped in and became and uncles, grandparents, and grand. If a relationship between a father and a child ruptures, again, extended family can fill the breach. When a kid gets sick in the middle of the day or when an adult unexpectedly loses a job, do you know how often, can I just brag on our church for a little bit? Can I do that? Do you know how often our church, and I don't know this until after it's done, do you know how often our church has done things like this. When somebody loses a job, I get an email saying, Pastor Peter, I got a, church for, I got a check for $2,000, enough to cover rent and payment. That doesn't just happen once in a while. It happens all the time. All the time. The second is not just resilience. The second, he says, of extended family, the great strength is their socializing force. He says, multiple adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave towards others, how to be kind. How many of us grew up in cultures where our parents just thought, you know what, auntie, uncles, grandparents, our neighbors, they're going to make sure you keep straight. Anybody? Anybody? That was me. That was me. I grew up in a town where there are perfect, quote unquote, strange I wasn't even related to that I knew were a part of a socializing force where if I didn't do the correct bow, I would hear about it when I got home. If I didn't say the right greeting, which in Korean, by the way, which literally means have you eaten. That's the way the Koreans way back when greeted each other because food wasn't all that plentiful. So way of saying have you eaten was a way of honoring and respecting them. So when I didn't say that, I would hear about it. There was a socializing force where an entire village came around and said, we're going to help you raise that child. Extended family. Extended family. By the way, parents, please give us the church permission to teach your kids what it means to follow Jesus. Amen? But did you know that doing that is costly? It's costly to carry someone else's burden. It's costly. Why? The days when I've sat with Carl, 
I didn't say anything. I just sat with him. And all I did was carry some of the burden. Some of his emotional burden was sliding onto me. And all Carl needed to know was, Peter, I'm not alone. You're not alone. But I'm going to be honest with you. It's draining emotionally. But when I carry some of his burden, some other burden comes off of him. It's costly. Can I also just real quick tie this to financial giving as well? It's costly to be generous. See, if you're sitting there going, I can't afford to give to people in need. I can't afford to give without it sacrificing my lifestyle. I can't afford to give because it's going to alter, you know, things that I want to do. I can't afford to give. Here's the thing. If you can afford to give only when you can do it without you burdening yourself, then how do we carry other people's burdens? Can I just say this? If you and I could afford to give, we're not giving enough. Let me say that again. There's no way to carry another person's burden without it burdening us. So if you're going, I can't do that without it burdening me, then you'll never carry someone else's burden. And lastly, family is committed to each other. Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Can you just look up here? Sissy, come on up. I pastor an entire generation of people, a culture of people that are starved and hungry for intimate relationships, and yet they don't know what to do. Do you know why? Because you and I live in a culture that values stability. You want stability, but you also value social mobility. You want to be loved, and yet you want to be free and autonomous. We live in a culture where we say, I want to be loved, I want to be known, I want to let down my fig leaf armor, but I want to come and go as I please. But I want to be able to move when I want to. If I have time, I'll make time for you. Here's the thing that I want you to know. Here's the thing that I need you to know. The most fulfilling relationships are relationships in which two people have said, I am committed to you. I am not going anywhere. It's not if I have time, I will make time for you. It's not if I feel like it. It's regardless of how I feel, I will be there for you. Because you know what happens when we do that? All of a sudden, you could trust them. There is trust that happens between two people who said, you're not going anywhere? Not going anywhere. Even when you see all of me, even when I see all of you, you're going to be there? I'm going to be there. Okay, then I'm going to let my guard down. Okay, so I don't have to pretend. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to market myself. You don't have to, mar- you don't have to spin. I don't, I don't have to manage my image. No, no, no. You can be you. By the way, can I just say this? If you're in a relationship that makes you feel insecure, run. If you're in a relationship where you can't be all of you, major red flag, run. The household of God is one in which we have said to each other, I am committed to you. I'm not just going to come and go as I wish. I'm going to commit to it. I'm not going to just do it if I have time. I'm going to prioritize and make time. I'm not going to just show up when I feel like, no, I will, I will, I will, I will, regardless of how I feel, be here for you. Some of you have never considered membership. Why? Because membership is commitment. 
Membership is, I am publicly living out this reality. I'm not going to bail when things get hard. I'm not going to come and go as I please. I will submit myself to others and embrace accountability so that people can speak truth to me. How many of you need to move from attending to committing? Move from just watching to participating. Move from just receiving to contributing. Move from consuming to investing. We are the household of God. We are the family of God. When we love each other as the world, as Christ loves us, the Bible says the world will know that He is God. I want to invite the parents to come on up, please, with their kids. And Miss Emily, if you can come on up as well, please, and join us. I love, 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 love. Absolutely love this. Please come on up and join me. Let me say again, this is not just for the parents to dedicate their children commit to raising their child to be a follower. This is you and me, household of God, doing all of these things we talked about this morning for each other and for, oh, for them. Hi, hi. Thank you, Dan. Parents, It's weighty to be part of the household of God, isn't it? It is. So I'm going to just, remember we talked about this. Just as, hi, Genepi. Come here, come on, let's sit together. Come here, come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, all right, right here, right here. No? You want to sit on my lap? You want to sit on my lap? No? Okay. Do you have brothers and sisters? Do you have aunts and uncles, grandparents? Do you have spiritual siblings that you're walking with, you're journeying with, you're doing life with? As you make these commitments unto the Lord, please remember that it's not just you and God, but these commitments are for you and our church family. Will you Each of these uh, families are going to introduce themselves, and so we can get to know them just a little bit before we make the commitments. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, we're uh, Chad and Alicia Hauge. Uh This is Genepi, uh, who's the one uh, wandering around. This is Beulah. Uh, um, we uh, chose their names. Uh, Genepi um, is actually the name of a flower that comes off of uh, the most bitter root we know, uh, wormwood. Uh, and it only uh, thrives in uh, the hardest to grow climactic conditions. And uh, for us, it's sort of modeled um, Lamentations chapter 3, uh, which uh, has the author uh, telling God 
uh, you made me drink wormwood and ends by praising God for his faithfulness. Mm. Uh, this is uh, Beulah, um, comes from Isaiah 62. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's at a point where um, you'd expect after Israel's uh, many repeated failures that, uh, that God has abandoned uh, Israel. But instead of abandoning them and forsaking them, uh, he gives them a new name. And uh, he says that they are chosen, mm. sought out, and that uh, they're in a land of marriage. Mm. Um, and so it's, uh, her name is Beulah. Beautiful. Okay, next family. Here we go. Hi, my name's Nicole, and this is Jay. Mm. This is Diego, and this is Isaiah. Mm. We're dedicating Isaiah, and um, his name means God is salvation. Mm. Um, I didn't choose that name, actually. Um, with both of my kids, I just sat on it until it came to me. Mm. So um, when I see Isaiah, it's always a reminder, an uh, important reminder that God is salvation, and, and I'm honored that that name came. Amen. Good morning. I'm Cassie Maxwell. This is my husband, Tim. This is Grace, who we're dedicating. Bo, and then Axel. Um, the name Grace, it's an amazing word. Um, it was also my grandmother's uh, name. And she was a devout Catholic. She, was, um, she had seven sons and one daughter, so she was very resilient um, mm -hmm. and accepting. Um, and we just love the word Grace. Hi, my name's Jesse, and this is my lovely wife, Yu. Uh, this is Evan Jal McKee right here. Um, Evan is the Welsh form of the name John, which comes from Hebrew Yohanan, which means God is gracious. Yes. Um, thinking of a prayer request, um, we really are looking for prayers for us more so than for Evan. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because we know that Evan, um, the Lord is watching over Evan, and that he will fulfill his special purpose yes. to bring glory to his name, yes. uh, just like each and every one of us here. Uh, that's the reason why he was brought into this world. Um, our prayer is that as each day goes by, we become more and more comfortable with the idea of giving up controlling the outcome of his life, and that as we pray, um, we don't just say the words, but that we fully and truly trust that God will take care of him. Amen. Amen. Hi, so we're the Wings, and uh, my name is Andy. This is my wife, Stephanie, and my uh, lovely daughter, Isla, and uh, our son, Gavin. And uh, Gavin, uh, his name, uh, because he was a miracle, uh, it means godsend. And uh, Gavin Luke, Luke is um, named after his, uh, Steph's um, uncle, uh, who passed away um, last year, so we wanted to honor him that way. Um, in terms of prayer requests, we just um, ask that you would pray for Gavin's uh, for God to fulfill uh, his promise through Gavin, uh, to love and serve him faithfully, um, but also to um, glorify him. Amen. Amen. Yes. And as um, one way that we as a church and Kid City and as an entire church want to support you in discipling our kids and pointing yes. your children to Jesus, um, our gift to you today is um, a Bible, and this is um, this. We want to encourage you to spend time in the Word with your kids. Yes. Um, whether that's a daily practice of at least something every night, but this is a great way for us to continue to point our kids to Jesus. Yes. And so we yes. are going to gift that to you. Yes. Um, 
And one more note, there's a beautiful card designed by Ruth Nakai mm -hmm. uh, with your child's name in, yes. included in the design. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Parents, here are the covenant or the commitments you're about to make. Will you as parents, by God's help, dedicate yourselves to the Christian nurture of your child by praying for your child consistently, by modeling what it means to follow Jesus at work, in the church, and in your home, teaching your child to obey everything Jesus taught, and committing your family to the life and mission of new community that they will come to know Christ as Savior, be baptized, and follow him as Lord. Parents, if you make this commitment, say, we do. Um, before I ask for their commitment, I've written a letter for, for each of your child. I want you to open it when they commit to following Jesus as Lord. Isaiah, here you go. Grace, Evan, and Gavin. Church, as church family, the household of God, will you and I promise to support, encourage, and care for these children and their families by praying for them regularly? by modeling through our collective lives what it means to follow Jesus and invite others to follow Jesus, by teaching them to obey everything Jesus taught, and by committing to be their spiritual family and share in the spiritual nurture and growth of their child. Church, if you make this commitment, will you say, we do? We do. Emily, pray for us. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you hear the commitments that we made today. And we know that really we cannot uphold these commitments without your spirit That's right. filling these gaps. Lord. That's right. That's right. So God, I ask that you would just um, pour out your spirit in this place. Pour yes. out your spirit over our parents yes, Lord. who have committed these things, Lord. Yes, Lord. May your truth dig deep into our hearts, Lord. May we be pointing each other to Jesus. We pray for each of these children. God, you, you delight in them. Yes. And you hold them tenderly. Yes. May we continue as a community to nurture them, to nourish, um, nourish their bodies, their hearts, their souls, Lord. May yes. we be a family to yes. each of these children. Yes. Lord, we trust that you are doing a great work in each of these families, yes, and we cheer them on. Yes. We cheer on the work that yes. you're doing, Lord, and we ask that you would make us worthy to be yes. their brothers and sisters, yes. their aunties and uncles. Yes, yes. Make us into the family that you have called us to be. Yes. We pray over these children. We are so excited for how yes. you are going to continue to work and grow, them, grow yes. their lives. We offer this to you in your name. Amen. Amen. 
Can we give them a big hand? Thank you. Thank you. Can we all stand together, church? our service today by just singing this old hymn together that reminds us of God's grace, his faithfulness, and his goodness. Come on and say Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a Yeah. Hey. 